Blog Talk Radio. Well, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. We finalize it. We've finished out of Pittsburgh with Doc Talk with Greg Roscoe. We've gone through uh, Oakland with Bruce Kessinger, and now we climax this thing with the Standing Above the Crowd podcast hosted by my good friend, a brother, a mentor, James Donaldson. Yours truly, Mark Mancini, running the board here. Live from Seattle, Washington, 347-205-9631. You can catch the archive version because the show goes quick on blogtalkradio.com forward slash Mancini Sports, podcast platforms, wherever you subscribe to, powered now by Mancini Media. So without further ado, let me lay the red carpet down, put that podium in its place. No slaps here, handing off the mic. James, how are you? First of all, second of all, how can people get a hold of you? Third of all, you just keep bringing legends through your great show each and every week, my friend. Hey, thanks so much, Mark. It's wonderful to be here with you again. And, yes, we have another uh, great guest in the line of great guests we've had so far. I, I think we've been doing this show for two months, two or two, almost three months now. And uh, every Saturday morning at this time, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, you'll find me, you'll find Mark Mancini, and another great guest along the way. So, um, people can get a hold of me at James D at standingabovethecrowd.com, and that's my direct email. Comes directly to me, uh, and I get get those responses. I comment right back to them, reply right back. Uh, so, give us uh, give us some of your thoughts on how you think the show is going so far. What other guests you would love to see in our lineup coming up, and we'll reach out to them and get them on board as well. And um, that's the best way to get a hold of me, and I'll be more than happy to correspond with you. Uh, today's guest I've known since 1983. Uh, this uh, was a fellow who was uh, NBA executive, NBA general manager. Uh, the time I was traded from the Seattle Supersonics down to the, San, the then San Diego Clippers, uh, he was instrumental in, in getting me down there, and uh, he had a long, long tenure in the NBA, uh, mostly in the executive offices up there with general managing and those kind of things. Uh, so I'm delighted today to bring another great guest. And before I get started, though, I want to give a quick uh, public thank you to our guest Pete today because during my very difficult and challenging time over the last three or four years, three or four years ago, uh, with mental health challenges especially, uh, I think a lot of you know my story and I've got a, a great book out about it now at celebratingyourgiftoflife.com. Uh, Pete was right there with me throughout and uh, just constantly uh, uh, a word of encouragement, uh, ins- inspiration, uh, uh, encouraging me to hang in there no matter what. And that really, really helped out. So I want to give a great thank you and a shout out to Pete for that. But without further ado, uh, our first guest today is Pete Babcock, who, like I said, I've known for almost 40 years now, and a wonderful, wonderful man, gentleman, professional who uh, is going to give some of his insights on the NBA then and now. And we'll talk about March Madness, the Final Four matchup coming up, even the women's Final Four that's just uh, going into the final game here. So let's talk about all those things. Uh, Pete, I uh, just want to say thank you for coming on board. Uh, give us a quick little background about yourself and how life is going for you now. How you doing, Pete? 
I'm doing fine, James. And, and before we start, thank you for the kind comments. I appreciate that. Uh, and I'm glad you're doing well. Hey, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, just real quickly to summarize, I spent 42 years in the NBA, uh, scouting capacities, uh, coaching with the old San Diego Clippers with Paul Silas, and then moved off the bench into the front office and was the general manager of three teams, uh, actually the San Diego Clippers my last year there, and, and then the Denver Nuggets in the 1980s, maybe four to 90, and then um, the Atlanta Hawks for 13 years. And then I spent a couple of years uh, helping my brother, who was the general manager of the Toronto Raptors. And then um, I thought I'd retired, and Cleveland called me and asked me to help them with player evaluations and the draft and evaluating talent. And so I spent 10 years my last 10 years of my career doing that until we won the championship in 2016. And then I did retire for good. So uh, I was very fortunate to do what I love to do for an awful long time and, and work with a lot of wonderful people like you, James. So it's, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a long, wonderful journey. And uh, I'm, I'm privileged and blessed to be able to share some of that with you throughout the years. Uh, let's, let's, uh, you know, our first question that came in, <laughs> someone is asking, Sam from Germantown, PA, he's asking, Pete, what's wrong with the Clippers? Why can't they just get over the hump? What's going on with the Clippers, Pete, your first assessment? Well, uh, first of all, it's so, so difficult to win a championship. You know, I have so many friends who spend as much time as I did in the NBA who, who never won a ring. And, and it wasn't because they didn't do a great job. It wasn't that they didn't work hard enough. It's just so difficult to get there. So, um, so that's the first thing. So it, it's not like the Clippers' fault necessarily. It's just it's hard to get to that point. Um, you have to have star quality. Uh, you're not going to get there, you know, with a, a mediocre team or a – you know, just a, a blue-collar overachieving team. You you might have success, but you're not going to get to the championship. So it's part of it is the luck of the draw in terms of getting that star player. Um, I, I, you know, there's such – the Clippers have a long history, obviously, and, and in, in the early days uh, the struggles were, I would say, emanated, emanated from ownership on down because – in the early days, I worked for Irv Levin for one year, and he sold the team to Don Sterling. And the Sterling years are obviously well documented. And and the reason I left San Diego, and uh, I resigned when he moved the team to L.A. Uh, because of the instability of the organization. And it, and in my opinion, it started with the ownership because it was not a stable owner, in my opinion. Um, so. That that was the problem in the early days. Now and and then that lasted for quite a while because he owned the team for for way too long, and um, <laughs> that you can't overcome. No matter how good your coaches are, your GM happens to be, um, it all trickles down. If you, I tell I tell young GMs today when or guys that are interviewing for jobs and say, you know, don't don't go after a job that doesn't have solid, dependable ownership because 
you'll spin in your wheels if you do. I mean, it's just you're not you're not going to be able to be successful. And and so to me, you, you always had to pick and choose who you're going to work for uh, if you had the luxury of doing that. And uh, so I think that that was. For a long time has been the problem. Now they've got apparently, and I don't, I don't know Steve Ballmer, but because uh, I've been out of the league for a while, but uh, he apparently is a terrific owner and is investing whatever it takes from a financial perspective and giving his staff all the means necessary to win. But you have to have, you have to have the right pieces and you have to have the right chemistry. And I, one of the things that I encourage. Uh, Guys that I talked to today, if, if it's a mentoring you know situation, they're asking me my advice. I'll tell them if if you're lucky enough to have great team chemistry, don't break it up. Um, mm. And if and, and team chemistry is so critical, as you know, James, because all the years that you played in the league, you know, yeah. you you have to if you if you don't, you can have pieces of the puzzle that that work by themselves individually, but it's a team game. So when you put those pieces together, they have to all fit in the same puzzle. And sometimes mm-hmm. they, and it doesn't mean that the, that they're bad people. That doesn't mean that they're bad guys. It's just sometimes the pieces don't fit in the same puzzle. And I think that's one of the issues that the Clippers have had over the years is, uh, you know, I'm just going to throw stuff out there and I, and like Kawhi Leonard, I don't know Kawhi at all again, cause I've been out of the league for a while, but, but from the outside looking in, you get you get those types of pieces that are great individual pieces, but but does it mesh well uh, yeah. in the right situation? Now in Toronto it did, but I don't know if it is with the Clippers. Uh, so, you know, I I don't have a great answer as to what what solves the problem today, uh, but uh, but they certainly have made huge strides from the days you and I were with them, James. Yeah, much better now than they were then. And yeah. you're right. Uh, chemistry is one of those things you just can't manufacture. It's either there or it's not. You can't make the guys care about each other or come together. It's it's just one of those things. It's either there or it's not. And, you know, we were around, you and I, Pete, back uh, in 83, 84 with the Clippers in San Diego. And we had a, a star-studded uh, all-star cast of players. But we we yeah. still couldn't win, uh, right? And you know, I'm, remember these players. Look at the players: Bill Walton, Norm Nixon, Terry Cummings, Michael Brooks, Jerome Whitehead, uh, Craig Hodges, Derek Smith, Greg Kelser. We we had players uh, just coming out of our ears, great players, but the chemistry just wasn't there. And uh, no. that's one that I remember about my years with the Clippers: the great, great players, but the lack of success on the court. Yeah. And, and the, the things that we dealt with in the front office, James, were, were uh, frustrating because the years that Sterling owned the team, uh, here's an example of the instability. We, in, the, in those days you had to negotiate your first round draft picks contract. It wasn't, we didn't have a rookie scale like today where you just plug it in automatically. So you had to, you had to negotiate that contract. We never, in the years I was with the Clippers, ever had our draft pick in training camp. It just because because Sterling wanted he and and his attorneys wanted to handle the negotiations themselves, and it, it was always a disaster because he would, you know, he'd come in so low that you knew they weren't going to accept that offer, and then 
if, if they didn't accept the offer, rather than trying to meet them in the middle someplace, he would keep lowering the offer. And so they would never, you know, so we had Tom Chambers. Then the next year we had Terry Cummings. And the next year we had uh, Byron Scott. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tom came yeah. in at the very, towards the end of camp. Uh, Terry came in at the very end of camp. Byron never came at all because Sterling called us and told us that he heard that Jerry Buss had interest in him and he want, he told us to trade him to the Lakers and we argued and argued about it. It's like, no, we don't want to trade Byron Scott. And, you know, we said, he told me, well, we can get Norm Nixon for him. I said, well, we love Norm as a player, but Norm's got like a couple of years left. Byron's got, who knows, 10, 12 years. Yeah. You know, That's right. it makes sense. This doesn't make sense. And he forced yeah. the trade. None of us wanted to do it. So, Anyway, it just to yeah. trickle down. That's right. That's right. And, and even though us as players weren't privy to all of the management discussions and things that were going on in the front office, it did trickle down to the players. You know, there was always rumors and whispers of this and that, who's going to be traded. Uh, and so I was, hey, I, I tell people I died and went to heaven when I got traded to the Dallas Mavericks. So yeah. uh, that was a great thing for me. But uh Hey, let's switch switch gears a little bit, Pete. Uh, it's March Madness, Final Four weekend coming up. Uh, any any favorites uh, you're looking at with the Final Four teams, and what do you think about uh, St. Peter's, the Cinderella team for this year? Yeah. Well, first of all, with St. Peter's, I mean, it was obviously fun to watch from everybody's I think's perspective. They they captured the imagination of the, of the basketball. Uh, uh, society across the country and all the fans and you know everybody loves to see an underdog you know do well and they they perform so well and then you know as as often happens with teams like that you plateau at some point and you because you, you have to be hit on all cylinders I mean you can't be you can't make a mistake if you're a team like that because you don't have the, the talent that the other teams have and so you can't miss a shot. You can't. You got to get every rebound. You gotta. You can't turn the ball over. You know they finally reached the point where they hit the wall a little bit, and they just you know shots weren't falling and things weren't going their way. And you can't do that against better competition. So it came to an end. But it certainly was fun to watch. And ter- in terms of the Final Four, I, you know, on paper, and 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 doesn't this doesn't mean anything. Uh, in terms of results sometimes, but on paper, from everybody I talked to in the NBA, uh, in terms of NBA potential players who are left in the tournament, Duke has the most. And so mm-hmm. you're, you're going to say, although on paper then, Duke ought to win because they have they have more NBA prospects on their team than the other teams do. But again, you can throw out the window sometimes because you, you know how the tournament is. It's one and done. So you know, if you're playing a seven game series like the NBA, well then, yeah, Duke could probably win the seven game series. But it's not that way. You you know you lose one game and you're done. So if but I, if you had if I I don't bet, but if I was betting, I'd probably have to bet on Duke. Yeah, yeah, and Duke is kind of the sentimental favorite with Coach K retiring this year. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of people who, even if they're not big Duke fans, you know, they appreciate the fact that everything he's that Mike has done uh, for the game of basketball and and been, you know been involved for so long that I think you've got a lot of people that are kind of 
looking at it as casual fans watching. They're probably pulling for for Mike to win the whole thing on you know on his his way out the door. So uh, so yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I think that that'll be on paper that'd be the most interesting game tonight. And the fact that it's crazy that North Carolina and Duke, in all the years that they both have been in the tournament, have never played each other in the tournament. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, the irony of it all, those two great powerhouses have never met up in the Final Four, but this time they will, so we'll see what happens here. Uh, You know, uh, let's not not leave out the women either. The women just uh, are in their Final Four as well. Uh, UConn, uh, which is a machine year after year after year, uh, and um, what do you think about the women's final four? You've been paying attention to that and watching that. I, I have, I haven't, not enough to, to say anything with uh, a well-educated answer. So that I, I'm probably the wrong person <laughs> about it. I, I have watched, you know, some of I, I watched some women's basketball, and I appreciate the fact that that uh, that I enjoy the fundamental aspect of the game that. That they they fundamentally are sound and they play the game the right way and and so I enjoy all that but I honestly don't see enough of it to really have yeah. any you know great opinion about it other than obviously the the powerhouses that you hear about all the time like UConn but I mm. uh, I don't know enough about it. Yeah, yeah. I I I watch some women's basketball and my thought for years has always been if they would bring the basket down maybe to eight feet and let the women dunk on the basket and hang on the rim like the guys do, it would bring about a level of excitement and tune in ability, if that's a word, tune in ability yeah. uh, from all, all the social media highlight reels and everything else. That would really, I think, up the popularity of the women's game where people would really tune in to watch if that would happen. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I had never thought about it in that regard, but uh, but that I was I was going to say before that you know their game obviously is a below the rim game where the men's game is an above the rim game, and and but now that you bring that up, that's a pretty interesting point. Though, you know, if you bring it down to nine feet or eight feet or eight six or whatever, that that I don't know that that could be interesting, but uh, I don't I don't have any answers but that would that would be interesting to experiment with it would be it'd be fun to experiment with and uh and i think guys like me old basketball diehards like us we would tune in and watch that stuff you know yeah. that's that's how the guys play and so yeah but you're right women's game is so much more fundamental and that's what i really appreciate about the women's game the guys right. are out there freelance and very creative and very independent uh but get by in sheer talent and sheer physical ability uh, the women are, yeah, below the rim, playing fundamentally sound, and and that's that's what we grew up with in high school and college, and that's really right. great to see still. Yeah, yeah, really. Um, hey, I got a question here from Mel from Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, he's asking a question: Why can't prominent college coast coaches last in the NBA? He's pointing out guys like Tarkanian, Calipari, etc. What's the big leap? Uh, the big transition? that causes so many of these great college coaches not to really be successful in the NBA? Well, I, I, my opinion is uh, that there's no reason why uh, a really good college coach can't be successful in the NBA. The problem in most cases 
is that when they get hired in the NBA, they get hired to coach a team that's not very good. And mm. so they don't last very long. They come in, they don't have enough, there's not enough talent there to win. You know, the, the, the coach, the, there's a coaching change taking place for a reason. Uh, otherwise, they, they wouldn't have a job open. And it's typically a team that's struggling. So that's part of it. The second part is that, and I, I think this depends on the, the personality of the coach, but oftentimes, not oftentimes, but in some cases, uh, the college coach is the show. He, he's the main of the program. So in college, you can do that because you, get a, you, you, know, you rotate new players in all the time. And, and particularly with the one-and-dones, you know, the really star players don't stay very long. And so, so it's a coach's game. You come into the NBA Players League, and if a, co- if, a, if a coach has that ego or mentality that it's all about him, uh, he's going to fail. Uh, mm. The best example is probably Rick Pitino going to Boston. Rick, Rick Pitino is an outstanding coach. I mean, he, he, I don't think anybody can argue with his ability to coach the game, but, but Rick is kind of, he is the program. And mm-hmm. so in Boston, uh, it, it didn't translate, you know, because now it's the Boston Celtics. It's not Rick Pitino. And you can't just come in and be Rick Pitino and make things work. You have to have the players you have, you know, so I think that's part of it. I, but I, I, I'm a big believer in that there's no reason college coaches can't be successful. Um, over the years, I've, I've interviewed a number of college coaches. Um, we, in fact, we hired Lon Kruger in Atlanta, but, and Lon hmm. is an outstanding, outstanding coach, been successful everywhere he's been except for our time together in Atlanta. But we hired him after we had torn the team apart to start over and you know, we had Lenny. Lenny was coaching the team before we hired Lon, and Lenny. We'd had a great run with Lenny. Uh, he and I had yeah. uh, six wonderful years together, and then the, then we were then we were forced. He and I were forced to tear the team apart, uh, and not really wanting to. It, we thought it was premature. We had, we had a good four or five years left with that team, but we were forced to tear it apart and start over. And all of a sudden, we had nothing left. And, and it wasn't Lenny's kind of team, and, you know, it was hard on him, it was hard on me. And then we bring in Lon Kruger to coach, and Lon had no chance, you know. Mm-hmm. He, just, he just had no chance because we didn't have any players. It, and, and so when he left us, he went to Vegas, and he went to Oklahoma, and successful everywhere. Now, had we had good players, you know, and, and not that we – I don't want to slight our players at the time, but uh, it just – we, we had torn it apart and you can't, you just can't start over uh, with, you know, it's just hard starting over. Yeah, it really is. That's, that's so true. Uh, wow. I mean, yeah, it's really, really good points you're making with all that. You know, uh, my, myself and, and Mark Mancini, the producer of the show are West coast guys. Uh, Mark's in Los Angeles. I'm up here in Seattle. You're an East coast guy. Of course, out here on the West Coast, we, we follow the Lakers, of course, Los Angeles, uh, and root for them to do well, or maybe some of us root for them not to do so well. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? With, <laughs> what, what, what's, now, 
the Lakers are one of those, you know, superstar studded teams, uh, you know, built for success. What's going on with the Lakers? Why? And I think they officially were eliminated last night with another loss from the playoffs. Why haven't they been able to put it together the last couple of years? I think, and again, this is, you, you, you know how you don't know any, you don't really know the true answers unless you're on the inside and understand what's going yeah. on behind the scenes. But from an outsider's perspective, I, I would go back to what we talked about earlier, the chemistry issue. You know, you can, you can get pieces who individually are outstanding pieces, but they don't all necessarily fit in the same puzzle. The, the best example I can give you of that, that I experienced, uh, and this is, might be an analogy for the Lakers situation in Atlanta. When we tore it apart and had to start over, um, we, we acquired uh, Theo Ratliff who was leading the league in block shots at the time. And Mm -hmm. we, uh, we got uh, um, uh, Sharif Abdul Rahim in a trade and who was an all-star forward. Great, you know, great person, great teammate. We got Glenn Robinson, you know, who'd been a perennial all-star at the Uh other four. And then we had uh, Jason Terry in the backcourt, who was an up-and-coming young player with, you know, with a chance of being pretty successful. So we had four pretty good pieces, and we couldn't win. And here's what happened. It wasn't that they they were all good guys. They all – we had no issues with any of them individually. But here's what would happen. Shields protecting the middle. And you could see this happen every game. Glenn was not a very good defender, even though he's a terrific offensive player. And I don't know that he really has heart in defending. So early in the game, his man would drive to the lane. Field would rotate over to help out to stop his man. Yeah. And, and Glenn's man would pass the ball to Field's man, who was wide open, who would dunk the ball. Because yeah. Glenn wouldn't yeah. rotate. So – Theo, and I could sit there and say to myself, here we go, Theo's going to quit rotating over because he's not going to get embarrassed by his man, you know, yeah. ball to dunk on us every time. And so the defense would break down night after night yeah. after night. So the pieces of the puzzle, when we look at it on paper, you go like, well, we've got, we've got three all-stars across the front line. How could you not win games? Mm-hmm. You've got three, three of your starters are, are, have been all-stars. And then and yet yeah. we have one guard who was an up-and-coming really good player we couldn't win and it's like yeah. uh because the puzzle didn't work i think that's what it looks like from the outside with the lakers i don't think the pieces of the puzzle um are, are they don't all fit in this puzzle and they're going to have to figure yeah. out how together again and it's what you said earlier james um sometimes you can't you can't invent the chemistry it falls in place yeah, and right. you know you get you get lucky when it's there, and when you whenever you have it, I tell guys you need to overpay to keep good chemistry. Don't give it up, you know, because you're lucky when you mm-hmm. have it. Good advice. I don't know if the owners take that, but uh, good advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, uh, Pete, you know we got about three minutes, three or four minutes left here. Uh, I'm looking at your background here. You had the Denver Nuggets and the Atlanta Hawks teams appear in 14 out of. 15, they made the playoffs 14 out of 15 seasons. Uh, that's a tremendous amount of consistency. The NBA playoffs are around the corner. 
what does it take for a team to really be playing well and peaking at the right time, no matter what the matchup is, going into the NBA playoffs? Well, I think number one is health. You, you, you know, you, you, your team has to be healthy uh, at, the, at that time of the year. Uh, so that's like yeah. the number one thing that you have going for you because you, you're assuming that, you know, if you make the playoffs, you've got some talent on your team. And then the number two thing is if you're going to dance in the playoffs, you've got to have, uh, I think, two things. You have to have the star quality on your team. Uh, you have some, you know, guys that you can go to when you have to have something done. And the team chemistry has to really be be strong. And if you have all those elements going for you, playing seven-game series, typically uh, the best team wins when you play a seven-game series. It's it's hard to upset somebody in a seven-game series. It happens, but it, it's hard to do because typically yeah. talent will emerge over seven games. So, mm. you know, I think health, chemistry, and talent, so those are the three things that, that have to fit for you and, and – uh, you know, you have all those things clicking at the right time, uh, then you got a chance of being successful in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever worry about jostling for position? You know, I mean, no one likes to talk about tanking games or throwing away games, but getting a better, more advantageous position going against another team in the playoffs, did that ever matter to you? Well, I, I, I always felt it was most important for our players to – uh, the more we won, the better it was, uh, no matter and let, and let let the chips fall where they may, because I just felt like winning becomes a habit, uh, just like losing kind of becomes a habit. So I, I just always felt we want to win every single night we possibly can. And if the matchups don't favor us, what can you do about it? You just, you know, kind of play the hand you're dealt. But uh, certainly in reality, when you looked at the matchups, you'd say, well, you know, we, we have, in the, like in the 1990s, when I'm in Atlanta, we could never get through Michael, you know, well, but mm-hmm. nobody else could for the most part. So, so it was like, you know, if we all of a sudden Chicago's in our bracket or, you know, we're going to have to play Chicago before the conference finals, it's like, why? You know, why, why do we have to play them again? <laughs> you know, you're going to play sometime, you know. You, you know yeah. So. So if you're gonna get if you can get out of the East, you're gonna to have to meet them at some point in time. So I wouldn't be overly focused on it. I just you know you just I, I just thought it was more important that our players develop the uh, the habit of winning. You know we just had to expect to go out and win on a nightly basis. So true, so true. Yeah, and as a competitive athlete myself, I had always wanted to play against the best players and the best teams, even though our odds were lesser against those great players. But, you know, that's what it was all about, the competition of it all. And you never know. you got to get out and play it. So, that's uh, right. Pete, hey, one, wonderful catching up with you. I'll give you a call after the show, and we can catch up a little bit more. But Great. thank you so much for coming forward and being our guest today. Uh, this is James Donaldson, Standing Above the Crowd podcast, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Call in with your questions, listen, or pick up the link and listen to it anytime you want to. Again, have a wonderful week, everyone. James Donaldson signing off.